Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Philemon, Paul's letter to the man named Philemon. This is part two of a series we've been looking at about how the gospel impacts community. The gospel and community. Last week, we talked about the ministry of reconciliation, and this week, Paul puts some skin on it. We get to see reconciliation in action. We get to see it embodied. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this letter to Philemon, and then I'm going to pray. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our co-worker, and to the church that meets in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all his saints. This is my prayer in order that your participation in the faith might become effective through knowing about every good thing that's happening among us into Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became as a father to him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he's useful to both you and to me. And sending him back to you as part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. So that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, I may have joy from you in the Lord. Uh, refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. And so do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a gift your word is, and I pray that your word would transform our hearts so that we wouldn't just know about the gospel, that we would live it out, that it would impact us, change our identity, that we wouldn't be identified by who we are and what we do, but whom you have made us. 
Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. God, I don't want to waste anybody's time, so please get me out of the way, and I pray that your word would speak to people and not me. God, I pray that we would be a changed community because of your word. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, it was William Shakespeare who once said, Jesters do oft prove to be prophets. Jesters do oft prove to be prophets. I want to take you back to a time. It was the summer of 1982. Uh, America was just ending a big recession. We were at the height of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Your St. Louis Cardinals were about to head into the, the World Series where they would beat the Milwaukee Brewers in seven games. I'm not going to mention that they lost to my Dodgers 17-4 to yesterday, but that's another point. Um, it was 1982. These things are happening. And in the midst of all this, Andy Kaufman is about to transform the world of professional wrestling. Andy Kaufman, the comedian, is about to make professional wrestling totally different, and in doing so, he was going to transform American pop culture at large. Uh, so Kaufman was a comedian who was totally different from all his peers. Uh, and while Andy Kaufman's peers would tell jokes, Kaufman wouldn't tell jokes Kaufman would embody jokes. He made himself the joke, and oftentimes his audience was not in on the punchline at all. Um, he, he was so good at these pranks, and this again, this is a totally different time. We're so used to this world, but this is 1982. Uh, Kaufman was so good at these pranks that at his funeral, his funeral, his best friend and manager thought it was all just a hoax. And he actually offered Kaufman money if he would come out of hiding because he's absolutely sure that he wasn't dead. This guy didn't just tell jokes, he embodied jokes. He knew that an embodied joke would have more of an impact and be more funny than just simply a joke that was told. And this all came to a head in the summer of 1982 on a... On a the show, a late night show of a new comedian called David Letterman. Uh, Letterman said it was the first time he had ever lost control of his show. Kaufman is standing there uh, in a neck brace with the professional wrestler uh, Lawler, the king. And uh, Kaufman is yelling at Lawler, he's screaming at him, he takes Letterman's coffee, unbeknownst to Letterman. Letterman is not in on the joke, and he dumps it on um, Jerry the King Lawler, to which Jerry the King Lawler slaps him across the face, almost so hard his neck brace almost falls off. What was happening here? It ran on the front pages of so many newspapers, no one had any idea what was going on. Well, what was going on was Kaufman had told a joke that didn't land, and so he decided then to live out that joke, and no one was in on it. See, earlier the previous year, Kaufman had an idea that he took to Vince McMahon Sr., the head of the World Wide Wrestling Federation. And he said, hey, McMahon, I think we can make this, this whole wrestling thing better if we take the characters that are wrestling outside of the wrestling rink. And so these people, these wrestlers have these feuds, and it's funny, but what if we took that to the public? And they went on the news, and they were just trash-talking each other, and nobody was in on the joke. They all thought it was real. And McMahon said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Uh, you're going to bring all this showmanship to professional wrestling? What is that? And so Kaufman decided that he was going to take this joke and he was going to live it out. And so he found this wrestler, Jerry the King Lawler, and he said, hey, let's live this joke out. And so no one was in on the joke except for a few people. And so Coffin would trash talk Lawler on the news. Lawler was from Memphis and was seen as this like southern darling. And um, so Coffin would 
bring his wrestling act to Lawler, and he would set up instructional videos for his audience about how to use soap because he'd make fun of them for being rednecks. He turned everybody against him. Everyone thought he was this Hollywood snob and this jerk. Who is this guy? Uh, and their rest, it hit a peak that summer when they had a wrestling match, and um, Jerry the King Lawler did an illegal pile drive onto Andy Kaufman. Kaufman then called the a real ambulance. So a real ambulance showed up that could have been helping real people, but it was helping him in this joke. He went to a real hospital, got real x-rays, and um, had that hospital paid them to make a real statement saying that uh, his neck had been broken. There was a strain to it. All this was an elaborate joke that he was living out. And now they were on David Letterman's show confronting him, and the whole public was just taken aghast by it. They had no idea. And actually, no one knew that this was a joke until 10 years after Andy Kaufman's death. This was something that they had kept under wraps. What was going on here? In the words of Shakespeare, jesters do oft prove to be prophets. See, Kaufman knew that his joke didn't land well, but he knew it was a great idea. And if people could just see it, if they could see it lived out, it would change professional wrestling. And now one of the most viewed channels on YouTube is WWE. And it all happened because some obscure comedian knew that a joke that's embodied is funnier than a joke that's told. That's exactly what the book of Philemon's about. Not wrestling. But the book of Philemon is about how Paul is saying, hey, we've been talking about this ministry of reconciliation. Let's put some skin on it. Let's see it in action. Uh, we, last week, we were in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul describes what he calls this ministry of reconciliation. Uh, this ministry of reconciliation is sinners alienated from God, living in a broken world. And so Jesus comes, pays the price of their sin, makes them new, transforms them into new creation. And then, instead of taking them out of the world, puts them back into a broken world so that they can invite other people to participate in this ministry of reconciliation. And so now, when we read this letter, this letter is the letter of a, a slave who had run away, got saved under Paul's ministry, and Paul is sending him back. And we can be just like a Andy Kaufman's audience. We're like, what in the world are you doing, Paul? Like, don't send him back. You're sending him back to a society, into a culture who didn't recognize him as a person. Uh, it, it's, slavery is evil. Paul, what in the world are you doing? What Paul is doing is this, though. He's saying, hey, we're going to take the ministry of reconciliation and we're going to live it out. We're taking a new creation and we're sending him back into a broken system and a broken structure. And in doing so, he actually starts to flip things upside down. Uh, Tom Holland, who's a classics um, scholar, said that the Apostle Paul is a genius. He sets depth charges that don't go off for hundreds of years. And when they do, they transform the world. And we get to see the groundwork of that transformation. We get to see what happens when this new creation goes into a broken world. We get to witness that transformation firsthand. And so this is the main point of the message of Philemon. This is what Paul wants us to take away today. Don't just tell people about reconciliation. Don't just talk about reconciliation. Embody it. Live it out. Own it and live it out. Make it a part of who you are. And to do that, he, we follow this amazing movement that he takes us on. First, Paul mimics Jesus' work of reconciliation. And he invites us to do the same. We're going to see what that means and how that looks like in the life of this runaway slave. 
And then once he says, hey, once you're mimicking Jesus' work of reconciliation, you're now in a position where you can see that this work of reconciliation creates something. It's not just this nice idea, but when we're all involved in this work of reconciliation, it creates a community. And you need that community to trust Jesus. So he says this, embrace your need for others. And then once we've done that, that community then goes into a broken world and transforms it. And he says this, use community as a witness to a broken world. So let's first look at how Paul mimics Jesus' work of reconciliation. So if you look with me back again in Philemon at verses 12, and then we're going to jump to 17 and 18. This is what he says. So Onesimus, well, let's get some background first. This sounds really foreign to our ears. Um, Remember last week we talked about how not everyone in the Roman Empire was recognized as a person, a persona. That was a legal status given to people who were wealthy, either either the head of the household, uh, people who just had a lot of money, social capital. Uh, If you were born a slave, you never would achieve the status of personhood. And so you didn't really need a name. You didn't matter. And so they'd often give slaves names like Onesimus. If you read literature from this time period, the early Roman Empire, Onesimus is an incredibly common name. It just literally means useful. Why? Slaves are useful. It's nice to have them around. People do your work for you. You don't have to pay them. You don't have to treat them like a person. And so they would just call them useful. It was incredibly degrading to the image of God. And so this guy, Onesimus, leaves Philemon for whatever reason we don't know. And he heads toward Philemon's spiritual mentor, Paul. And so Paul, uh, he gets saved under the ministry of Paul, and now Paul is sending him back. And let's, let's look at how that sending him back, which sounds so foreign to us. If that sounds awful to you, just hang in there. We're going to see how Paul actually takes all the oxygen out of the room for slavery. It's amazing. It's way more powerful than he had just, if he had just sent him back and said, hey, slavery's wrong. Stop it. He actually, he actually sends him back in a way that actually can transform culture. But let's look at how he sends him back. He says this, I'm sending him back to you in verse 12 as part of myself. Verse 17, um, so if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would accept me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Now, when Paul says that he's sending Onesimus back, that's not the typical word used for sending someone back to return them from where they came. It's actually a legal word. He's saying, I'm sending him back for judgment. I'm sending him back uh, so he can stand for what he's done, which is awful and terrible news if you're Onesimus. Because if you're a runaway slave, you're not recognized as a person, and your masters can do whatever they see fit with you, this is certainly what is, Onesimus knows the risk he's running by going back is crucifixion. That's what they did with runaway slaves. They weren't people. Crucifixion was cheap. They would kill them. But listen to what Paul says. If he's done you any wrong, charge that to my account. Paul's saying this. If you're going to kill somebody, kill me. Charge it to me. That same word, charge it to my account, is used throughout the book of Romans uh, in sentences like this. Abraham believed God, and it was charged to his account as righteousness. Uh, What Paul is doing is he's taking 2 Corinthians 5 and he's just applying it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sinned against a holy God. Jesus did not. Jesus takes on the penalty for our sin. We get his righteousness. Onesimus uh, is, deserves, quote, in this broken world, 
crucifixion. Paul does not. And Paul's saying, look, give it to me. He's not just talking about Jesus' ministry. He's embodying it. He's mimicking how Jesus does this reconciliation. He's taking on the fall on himself. And, and just to be safe, like he's like, and by the way, Onesimus, you actually owe me your very life, so you're not going to do this, so don't worry about it. And like that sounds kind of odd. Uh, you're like, wait, Paul, like, wow, like you're just, you made this amazing claim, and then you kind of take, you just take, undo it. Um, but sometimes when we read this letter, if we read it really fast, we can kind of miss the genius and the beauty of what Paul is saying. Like, for example, look with me at uh, verse, I think it's 11. Yeah, 11. So Onesimus, that name that means useful, which was a common name for slaves, Paul now says this about Onesimus. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. And it's like, wow, that's kind of rude. Like, good one, Paul. Um, what Paul is doing, though, is he's playing with words, uh, and he's actually making a profound theological point about Onesimus' identity. Uh, like we said, the name means useful, and that was wrapped up in just, hey, you are a commodity that served me. Um, but Paul is making a pun that's really beautiful in Greek and really lame in English. Uh, the word for useless and useful sounds a lot like Christ. So he's saying this, once Onesimus was Christon, and now he's you Christon. What is he literally saying? Once Onesimus didn't have Jesus. He didn't want him, didn't care about him. He was ah, didn't care. But now Jesus is beautiful to Onesimus. He's, he's, he's changing his identity. He's again applying 2 Corinthians 5 right into this situation. 2 Corinthians 5.16, we no longer regard each other in a worldly fashion. We don't think about each other like the world does. The world viewed um, Onesimus as a commodity, not as a human being. But Paul's saying this, he is a human being. He is actually more than that. He's new creation. He's retooling his identity. See how he's, he's putting skin on this ministry of reconciliation and in a place where that would have been totally foreign. And then he even takes it one step further. Onesimus isn't just new creation. He's not just, okay, take him back as a slave and now you have this new creation slave. Isn't that going to be great? He says this to Philemon, verse 17. If you consider him a partner, accept him as you would accept me. What Paul is doing here is he's just leveling the ground. This new creation community that the gospel creates is built on complete and total equality. That was completely foreign in that world. It's been completely foreign in our world. This is something totally new that had never happened before. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. Paul received a runaway slave and sent him back as an equal with his master. What a powerful testimony of what this new creation creates. Look, and he even, he, he doesn't just say that in that verse. He, he rubs it in again and again. Verse 1, he calls Philemon his dearly beloved. And then in verse 20, he calls Philemon his brother. But then look at what he says about Onesimus in verse 16. He uh, no longer receive him as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. You both have this same identity. You are both one. It's an old cliche, but the reason old cliches stick around is because they're built in truth and they're powerful. The ground at the foot of the cross is totally level. 
Paul is sending a, broken, a new person back into a broken system in a way that that system has no categories for. He's not reaffirming that system. See, if he had just sent Onesimus back and said, hey, slavery is bad, don't, don't do it. What would have happened is Christians would have got this identity of like, oh yeah, there are these people who, they worship Jesus as God, uh, they believe he died for their sins, and they think slavery is wrong. We don't really get it. It's kind of weird. But instead, he totally takes all the bullets out of that gun. He makes slavery totally impossible. Why? Because you are tied together. You're one body. He says, receive him as you would receive me. There are no such thing as super saints. If you're in here today and you trust Jesus, we are all on level ground. Paul was the same as Onesimus, was the same as Philemon. They were all equals, one And that was something the world had never seen before. And it's not just enough to recognize that equality. Paul wants to push Philemon, to push Onesimus deeper into that equality. Uh, A lot of times when we read Paul's letters, uh, he tells us right up front why he's writing the letter. And he actually does that in Philemon. It's super helpful. Verse 6, this is what it says. In order that... Your participation in the faith. So he's writing in order that your participation in the, faith, in the faith may become effective through knowing about every good thing that's happening among us into Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that I'm writing for this thing called partnership, this fellowship, that it might become energetic, that it might breathe life into it so that you might move deeper into Christ. Here's what he's saying. Here's the second way that he puts skin on the ministry of reconciliation. You can't understand it if you don't have anybody else in your life. We may understand the gospel, but when we practice the ministry of reconciliation with one another, we're experiencing it in a deeper way and we're moving deeper into Christ. That's what Paul's saying. You need other people. You're not on your own. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. We, this community, you need it if you're going to really understand what it means to follow Jesus. He's saying embrace your need for others. Needing other people is not a sign of weakness. That's an incredibly American idea. That's a culture that loves John Wayne. That's a culture that loves the, the, the one athlete on a team who this person led the team to glory. No teamwork. That, that person, they were the champion. That's American. That's not New Testament Christianity. We are a community. That word that Paul used, he's saying he's writing so that his participation might be given energy, might be made more alive. That word participation um, is used, your version might say, your sharing of the faith, your fellowship in the faith. It's the word koinonia. And it literally means it's a unity. But our, the word unity isn't, doesn't encapture the whole idea of what it means to be unified with someone. You can be unified around a lot of different things. A political ideology, love for a sports team, love for an artist. Um, but you're not necessarily tying your life to them. There's, a, there's an expiration date. There's an end to that unity. But this unity, this koinonia, is a unity that wraps your life together. And in that wrapping of your life together, once you do that with other people and start to experience reconciliation, you move deeper in your understanding of the gospel. You move deeper into Christ. You're embodying this ministry of reconciliation. Think about it. Philemon had power. He was a powerful person. 
And he was taking a risk by accepting his slave back. He could have lost social standing. He could have lost uh, money. This could have been financially risky. And so now he's starting to see, oh, wow. I serve a God who actually was really powerful, who had power and gave that up to someone with nothing to offer. Onesimus had nothing to offer. Okay, I'm starting to live out and to understand this ministry of reconciliation in a richer, truer, and deeper way. Like the philosopher James K.A. Smith says, you're not a brain on a stick. We're not just supposed to tell you facts about Jesus. We are, we are supposed to embody this message, to live it out together. And in living it out together, we experience it in rich and exciting and true new ways. And Paul says in verse 6 that that's moving deeper into Christ. You can't do that on your own. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. And, and what holds koinonia together, that fellowship, that partnership? How does it work? Is Paul forcing this on anybody? Look at verse 9. He says this, I appeal to you on the basis of love. One of my pastoral heroes, uh, he was being asked by someone, hey, how do you build a church? How do you make a church really successful? How do you get a lot of people uh, at your church? How do you go multi-site? How do you do it? And he said, I don't know, and I have no interest in really doing that, but here's what I do know. If you preach the gospel, people start to understand that they're sinful, more sinful than they even thought originally, but they're loved and they're accepted. And when they work that deep into their bones, they start loving other people. And when you have a community of people that love other people, the outside world comes in and sees that and says, I want that. That's unusual. We need to embrace our need for others. And when we do, when we embrace this community, this wiring of our lives together, the fruit of its love, when we understand the ministry of reconciliation, we experience the love of one another which pushes us deeper into Christ. Uh, The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, speaking about this passage, makes this amazing claim. He says this, If Philemon were the only document we had from early Christianity, think about this claim for a second. If Philemon were the only document we had from early Christianity, we would know that something different was happening, different from the way the rest of the world behaved. What we see here is we're starting to see things, this new community come together and starting to change the world. See, about 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, a prominent Roman senator named Pliny the the Great had a runaway slave come to him. It was from his friend who was a little bit lower on the social ladder. And so Pliny the Great wrote a letter, which we still have, and I'm just going to read part of it to you. Uh, He says this to his friend. Hey, you told me that uh, you had been angry with a freedman of yours, and now he's come to see me. He threw himself at my feet, clung to me as though I were you. He wept a lot. He asked for a lot, though he kept quiet a lot too. To sum it up, he made me believe he was genuinely sorry. I think he's a changed character because he really did feel he did wrong. Now, I know you're angry, and I know that you have a right to be angry, But mercy earns more praise when anger is fully justified. Once you love this fellow, and hopefully you love him again, but for the moment, it's enough that you let yourself be placated. You can always be angry again if he deserves it, and you'll have all the more reason to be placated now. He's young, he's in tears, and you have a kind heart. Make all that count. This letter is so close to Philemon, but what does it do? It reinforces that social structure. It says this, hey, 
you're super rich, you're super powerful. That's not really becoming of a rich, powerful person to be angry. So in order to keep your status, forgive your slave. Just let him go. So it's reinforcing this broken system, this broken world. What does Paul do? He takes a new creation and he throws them back into that broken world, but in a way that not just reinforces it, in a way that completely subverts it. He sends back a slave as an equal, and that was something that no one in the Roman Empire had ever thought of or heard of before. We live in an age where it's so easy to take for granted. But I just want to remind you that we live in a country where uh, the, an honorable judge who's in the first service reminded me of this. In 1854, that is not that long ago, 1854, a slave sued his master and, uh, for his freedom, and the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of the United States says they wouldn't hear that hearing because a slave wasn't a person. We live in a broken world as well. And we're as new creation, we have something completely different to offer the world. See, for a lot of people who've tried Christianity and it's not for them, they're like, I, I get what this is all about. Like, I've been here, done that. This is all just about empire building. You know, you get a pastor who's really cool, he preaches good sermons, we get him a podcast, the podcast gets popular, they go to conferences, conferences work out, then he's got this huge house, huge money, and he's a big deal. That's Christianity, that's empire building, I don't want anything to do with that. But what Paul's saying is this, no, no, we're flipping things on their head. We're not, we're not just holding up those structures that are broken, we're something new and entirely different. We are this new creation who's going into the world to subvert the old way of doing things and in doing so to offer hope as a church we offer hope by our distinctiveness not by going with the flow and that's what he's saying use community to witness to a broken world this is something that's more crucial than ever just ask people who weren't born in the united states what their impression of the u.s is it's very easy for us we we, i myself i've lived here for my whole life I can be just numb to how it is. But if you ask people who weren't born here, hey, what's the U.S. like? An answer that they very frequently give is it's a lonely place. It's so isolated, so individualistic. We live in a world where people are lonely, where they're losing their humanity. And we can say, no, 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 we belong. We belong not just to a family, but to a community of new creation people. And yes, we're going to sin against each other. Yes, it's going to be broken. Yes, it's going to be messy. But we have this identity as people who want to enter into that messiness and that brokenness and to offer whole healing and to help people walk toward wholeness. That's what this passage, that's the identity that we've been given. Uh, the theologian Oz Guinness, uh, whose great-great-great-grandparents gave us Guinness, uh, Oz Guinness once said this, Far too much Christian evangelism and apologetics is based on the assumption, is based on the assumption that everyone is open, interested, and needy, when most people, most of the time, are quite simply not. We live in a world that's tried Christianity and said, no thanks. What can we do? How, what do we do? We just give them more facts? We just tell them more? Oh, we really are awesome. I promise. No, we need to embody this. We need to do what Paul did and mimic this ministry of reconciliation. Be willing to be wronged. That's what Paul was doing. He offered himself up to be wronged in the highest way. He, and Paul, Paul of all people, Paul embraced his need for others. He identified with Onesimus, said he's a part of my very being. If Paul needed other people, I'm pretty sure you do too. And then that new community, when we start doing that, when we love one another, when we're living in the fruit of that, 
That's something totally, completely different than anything the world has ever experienced. And so, like I said last week, we want to give everyone in this room an opportunity to apply that. How do we do this as a community? You know, we we say we have priorities, but if we don't have disciplines and rhythms, those priorities often just fall along the wayside. And so we're relaunching community groups. Uh, Again, we don't want to do what Paul said. We're not forcing this on anybody. It's not going to work, and it's not going to be what it could be if it's forced. It has to be a fruit and a ministry of love that we want to be in each other's lives because we know life is messy, and we need each other if we're going to really grow and understand in Jesus. So at a staff meeting last week, we were talking about Compass Church uh, next year turns 50. That's old. I'm not 50. Um, but Compass Church turns 50 next year, and that's awesome. It shows God's faithfulness throughout the generations. Um, but also think about it from a different angle. That's 50 years of conflict. It's 50 years of sinners all coming into a room, and they don't stop being sinners because they came into that room. There's brokenness in this room. There's relationships that need mending in this room. What are we going to do? Are we going to ignore that, sweep it under the rug, pretend it doesn't matter? Or are we going to jump into the messy, messy work of reconciliation? Reconciliation is messy. It totally is. It would be way easier to pretend there were no conflicts. But when we deal with these conflicts... As the author Ken Sandy says, conflicts are an opportunity for the gospel to shine. And so, if we, can so, if we can jump into those spaces together and say, hey, we're broken, we're messy, and I'm only giving you the churchy version of how messy I am. Like, if you really knew who I was, whoo! We're saying, hey, we want to jump in those spaces and we're going to do it together. We're going to jump into that messiness out of love. We believe relationships, this community, is worth it. It's a mess worth making. And we believe that if we do it, we're going to do it wrong. We're going to mess it up. I'm going to disappoint you. We're all going to just mess it up. But if we're committed to our identity as new creation and these ministers of reconciliation, there's hope. There's hope that brokenness doesn't have to have the last word. And that's powerful. When people come in here and they see people that shouldn't be getting along, uh, but do, that love each other, that actually say, we need each other, That is a powerful testimony that something supernatural is going on here. And we have the opportunity to do that together. We can embrace our need for one another. It's going to slow us down. It's going to be messy. But it's going to proclaim the gospel powerfully to a watching world who's not seen anything like that ever. When conflict happens, we run. Fight or flight, sometimes both. Reconciliation is messy. Community groups are going to be messy. They're not going to be perfect. They're not going to live up to anybody's expectations but it's worth it. Reconciliation is also risky. Think about what it takes to be uh, reconciled. It takes a little bit of vulnerability. It takes opening up. Vulnerability is in itself a risk. If I'm vulnerable with you, you can take that information and use it against me. If I'm vulnerable with you, you can gossip. If I'm vulnerable with you, you can judge me. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that about you. If I had known that, whew. We believe that it's worth the risk because that's, wh- that's where change happens. That's where growth is. And when we're vulnerable with one another, when we're messy with one another, we're actually growing in our experience and our understanding of that koinonia. 
We're wiring our lives together. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. This is not easy. It's not just because we said it. It's going to be awesome. It's hard. It takes work. But it's worth it because it puts the victory of Jesus on display among broken people. And then you can be honest about your brokenness. You don't have to hide it, right? That's not fun. Paul is offering a, a look into this, this ministry of reconciliation that flipped the world on its head. This ministry of reconciliation didn't stop in the first century Roman Empire. It's continuing today. Many of you have experienced it, and I truly believe that we can keep experiencing it. It's not something that we're just, we experience it once at salvation and we leave it behind. But it's something we grow in and we keep experiencing till the day we die. We need one another. And we need one another to help make this work. And so, on your way, on, during the donut hour, some people were standing by the donuts, and they wouldn't let you get a donut until you picked up one of these cards. You can still pick them up. They're still there. Grab one and pray about joining one of these groups. Be known. Step out of the shadows. Onesimus met Paul in the shadows. He was on the fringes. And when he left Paul, he was a part of his very heart, or as the King James says, his bowels. He was just a part of Paul. Don't be on the fringe. This isn't a cool kid club. That we're all equals. And that equality, when we love one another, when we need one another, and when we're pointing each other to Jesus, that equality is a powerful witness to a broken world who's never experienced anything like that. Will you walk with me as we pursue that by his grace? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're a savior who loves broken people. I pray that you would help us to do this, to embody the work of reconciliation, to not just talk about it, but to make it our own, to build our identity on the fact that we're a new creation in a broken world. And I pray that the city you've put us in uh, would see that something different is here and it's not anything we've done, but it's something your spirit has done moving through broken people. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.